0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am incredibly excited today to talk to one of I think our strongest, best, most thoughtful, and interesting—I'll say young—he's um, not really young, but compared to me, he's young—Con Law professors in the United States, Professor Richard Ray, the Joe B. Piasek Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Uh, Richard was previously at UCLA. He went to Harvard. Has a master's from Cambridge, a JD from Yale. Interestingly, he clipped for Judge Kavanaugh on the Court of Appeals and Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court at the end of this podcast. I hope to ask him just one or two very general questions about Justice Kennedy, not about his clerkship, but about Kennedy in general. Um, Richard, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the pod, and I'm looking forward to learning from this discussion. A lot of these ideas are still In flux for me and I've benefited from uh, your work in these areas.
0: Well, one of the reasons, thank you, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time and we were going to do this, I think, sometime during COVID and then it got pushed off and so on and so forth, is I do think, uh, I want to tell the audience this, um, they should read your your work because you are one of the more creative, interesting, and I would say pushing boundaries uh, of of our current crop of constitutional law professors. So uh, I really love your work. So we're going to start with two major articles you've written. Uh, the first one is called, should gradualism, that's gradualism, have prevailed in Dobbs? And um, this obviously is a timely topic. What do you mean by gradualism? Why we, well, we know why it wasn't the gradualism decision, but what do you mean by that? And why do you think maybe the court should have been more gradualist, if that's the correct word?
1: Yeah, sure. So in the paper you're talking about, the book chapter, I understand gradualism very broadly to mean any temporal extension of a decisional process by a court. So an example of of gradualism that I I think the court has used quite a bit during the Roberts Court um, period and that I tend to be uh, supportive of is, is an idea that I call the doctrine of one last chance where the court would signal that there's a majority of current justices who are seriously considering a big disruptive change, often an overruling of precedent, but it could be something else. And they have to give that notice before actually following through on the disruption. So uh true to form, the Chief Justice in Dobbs I think was trying to do something in that vein. And it doesn't mean that he necessarily would have followed through. Um, There are times when the court uh doesn't or might not follow through. Um but uh the chief at least didn't want to didn't want to go the whole nine yards right away in Dobbs. And I'm I'm saying that something like that would have been good. It would have been a a superior way to grapple with the very big and difficult important uh, issues that were at stake in Dobbs.
0: So rather than reverse Roe and Casey, I'll use Justice Ginsburg's phrase here, in one fell swoop, there's an irony to that phrase, but rather than reverse it in one fell swoop, Justice Roberts wanted to uphold the Mississippi law that was at issue, saying, I think he said, most abortions anyway happen. um, It was a 15-week ban. Most abortions do happen before that, like 98%. Not that there aren't some heartbreaking ones that happen afterwards, but he was saying, let's just say that uh, fifteen weeks is not an undue burden. That's this case. That's all we need to do to decide this case, and we'll worry about the rest of it later. Is that the kind of opinion you wish they all had written?
1: Yeah, I think that would have been better at least. I think there are different ways of of approaching gradualism. They they could have um, they could have given a variety of signals. I think that a minimum would have been a superior approach to what. Um, to what the majority did, and you know, one one odd feature of the litigation that I find really fascinating is that the parties agreed uh, before the court that that was not a good option. In other words, both parties wanted the court, both sides wanted the court to go big or or not at all, uh, either affirm everything or or overrule everything. At least that's that's what they appeared to be saying. Uh, and it's very similar to what happened in the wind up to. Uh, Planned, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, where there's yeah. a similar kind of all or nothing framing by the parties. And, you know, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, or Justice Souter were not, were not interested in that kind of, uh, big sweep either way. And at that time, and I, I think that's, again, I think that's, that's a revealing and maybe troubling feature of the litigation in Dobbs, that the parties were, were so disinterested in that kind of incrementalism.
0: Richard, one of the aspects of your scholarship that we probably won't get to a lot today, but is, is really penetrating and, and important, is procedure? You write a lot about procedure, and um, one of my questions about Dobbs, which I kept yelling into the wilderness and nobody took seriously, um, was that the question presented in Dobbs, the official, and, and why don't you take a second to, since you clerked for the court, to explain that to the, to the you know non-lawyers listening? But the official question presented in Dobbs did not ask the court to overrule Roe and Casey. I find it. Um, odd, at, at best and inappropriate at worst, that the court decide to take that those steps, those major country-changing, maybe world-changing steps, in a case where they weren't asked to do it at first. Am I wrong about that?
1: Yeah, so I, I think you're, you're basically right. This is one of the uh, concerns that I have as well, I know a number of people have about how the case proceeded. Uh, just to kind of simplify it, yeah. when, when this petition for certiorari was first filed in the Supreme Court, Justice Barrett was not yet a member of the court. And so the the state framed their case in kind of a, a more modest way in order to try to count to five, I think. And then the composition of the court changed, and when uh, the court granted certiorari, uh, and then the opening brief comes in and takes a much stronger view, basically saying that though the question presented that had been posed in the original petition, uh, I think is most naturally read as, as asking something more limited, more like what the chief justice ultimately yes. opined on, Did. whether the viability rule, in other words, is... Um, is, an, is a hard and fast rule or ought to be. Uh, instead the, the state came in and said you know what just forget about the viability rule the whole right itself should be uh, should be rejected. And uh, I do think that that, that is uh, part of the problem. Now I, I've been involved in discussions with people who said well no because if you if you put the viability rule in the question one way of answering that the viability rule is not sound is to say that the whole right associated with the viability rule is is um, is unsound. And there's a sense in which I I can see what they're saying. I mean, I I could debate, and you could debate, I'm sure, also whether that's consistent with how the court has normally approached the idea of a question presented to construe it in that way, and I think it is debatable. But but whether or not it 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 can be kind of squeezed into the idea of a question presented to have this kind of latent premise that is actually in dispute, it seems like a a prudential, cautionary problem. You know, it's a it's a problem that people were debating. I remember debating, I imagine you were debating, what does the grand assertiorari mean? It was very unclear to people. Uh, some people did say it means they're going to overrule everything. Some people said, no, no, no it doesn't mean they're going to overrule everything. Right. Uh, and I think even at that basic level of notice and procedure it would have been much better if the court had, um, had provided better notice. And I'll give one more example of that. In, in Citizens United, obviously a very controversial decision in many ways, but there was similarly a question, a uh, debate there about whether the court could understand the question presented sufficiently broadly to uh, overrule lots of case law. And so one curative step the court made uh, due to internal disagreement was to have re arguments specifically on the question of overruling. And they didn't even do that in Dobbs. Uh, and so I, I find that to be, uh, you know, it may not be a knockdown problem with the decision, but it, it's problematic to me.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I think technically we could make some arguments as to how they weren't precluded from doing this. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the wrong thing to do. They should have told the world, we're really considering this. I guess the opposite argument is, you know, let's go back to the 90s. The Bush administration, I mean, the Reagan and Bush administrations asked the court to overrule Roe eight times. Uh, In Casey, the court kind of, you know, does a compromise thing. Um, People have been asking the court. It wasn't like the American public didn't have notice that this was an issue that, you know, might happen. Um, I I find it hard. I think a better practice would have been to ask for re-argument on the question, like they did in Citizens United. Although my understanding, two things about Citizens United, since you brought it up, uh, a comment and a question for you about it, I don't want to get too off track, but I do want to ask you about this. Um, But my comment is, my understanding is Kennedy twisted Roberts' arm to hold it over for a year to address, or at least to address the questions that the question presented didn't technically address. Uh, And I also have some information that Roberts didn't really want to do that, but he knew he needed Kennedy's vote, it's a 5-4 case. so but you don't have to comment on that because you for, I don't want you to comment on that because you could for Kennedy. But I do think that's what, what happened. My question, my that's we're gonna go off the roadmap for one second, then we'll get back to it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Liberals get really mad at me when I say Citizens United's result is obviously right, even for me, who thinks the court should never overturn anything. You know, that's that's my life, my life, you know, my life thing. It was a prior restraint of a movie. About politics, I mean, there was a million ways the court could have decided that case narrowly without doing the terrible damage I think it did to the country. But as far as the result goes, it's a prior restraint of a polit- of political speech. How can that possibly be legal? Am I wrong about that?
1: Uh, so my views of free speech maybe are a little bit different from what you said, but I, I think the kernel, a uh, core of what you said, I, I think is is sound in the sense that. There is a very serious free speech issue, uh, there and, and the, the scope of the theory under which, uh, you were calling a prior restraint the speech prohibition. The yes. scope of the theories being put forward was, was very troubling, I think, to lots of people, including people on the left. You know, the famous incident that where, um, before, uh, uh, Lena Kagan became Solicitor General, uh, the attorney was asked whether the government could prohibit books about elections if published by corporations. And the Solicitor General said under a theory that yes. And so I think you know some that's got to be not not right. And uh, we could talk a long time about how to integrate yeah. that intuition with. I, I'm, I'm uh, just with saying campaign. Citizens
0: United shouldn't be the terrible, the result shouldn't be the terrible symbol. We should pick a different case, like the McCutcheon case, or any other one, or the Arizona case, or any one of a number of other cases that I, I think were horrifically wrong. I don't think Citizens United is horrifically wrong in result, and then liberals scream at me. That's what happens.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's, that's a very uh, plausible uh, view. Um, on the the AMK Baxter, I would say I wasn't actually clerking that year, so I'm okay. not going to comment any more than that. Anyway, yeah. Um, uh, my understanding of what happens is from public sources. Okay. Um, so on the the first point you made, though, going back to Dobbs for a second, yeah, I think there is a a wrinkle or a difficulty, in my view, that I I, I want to acknowledge, which is that uh, there is this long persistent political movement to eliminate Roe that is very explicit and very on the surface and that lots of people know about. And so there is a possible reaction that that was a notice. The notice was maybe Casey itself back in the early nineties. Right. Um, that this could happen. Uh, and indeed I want to trade on that to some degree in part of the, the paper that I wrote because I want to say that from the standpoint of constitutional legitimacy, the legitimacy of Dobbs uh, or, or the outcome at least reaching Dobbs, whether it should have happened in Dobbs itself or in a, a later case, partly stems from this sustained political mobilization that, that has a democratic pedigree uh, that is significant and I think can't be uh, completely discounted. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of saying that on the one hand, on the other hand I'm saying they should have given better notice uh, in Dobbs itself. And I don't think there's actually inconsistency there. I think it's more of a nuance or a, a feature than a bug. And part of the reason for that is that the considerations are not quite the same in the two contexts. So just to give one example of that, in the, in the gradualism context for the court, uh, part of what the court would want to do is to convey to very specific people, um, very real people that a big change could be about to drop. And I think the long persistent political campaign to end constitutional abortion rights does not, does not live up to that because people can't be in a state of heightened, uh, readiness, you know, in 1994, 1995, 1998, and get 2005. It's just not possible to be in a constant state of readiness for years and years and years and decades. Uh, and indeed, the most recent cases before Dobbs most recent cases, of abortion rights win at the Supreme Court. So, so part of my thinking is that in order to convey to people the uh, imminent reality of abortion rights eliminating something, something more than the constant political campaign um, had to happen, and, and that that's the kind of notice that I think could have happened um, if the court had done something different. But I, I do acknowledge that tension, and and I I want to trade on both halves of that of that equation in my argument. Well, you talked about legitimacy and
0: and one of the things that your, your um, essay, which is in a book, as you said, um, uh, not an article, um, triggered in my mind. So so I'm, of course, an anti-formalist in every imaginable way. But I want to ask you a formalist type question. It, I, I think one reaction to your piece from many people on the right, e- even people who favor abortion rights on the right, and there are those people, um, I, I think they might – let's say I'm going to put words in his mouth. I hope he doesn't kill me. But like, I think if Jonathan Adler was here, and Jonathan and I disagree on many things, but he's a very, very smart guy, I think he would ask you this question. And so it's a question I want to ask on behalf of the formalists in the world. I, again, I'm not a formalist, obviously. It feels like this idea of gradualism that we kind of know what the legal result ought to be. Um, based on our best intuitions about con law and text and history and whatever precedent. Um, once we've reached that decision that the law is X or the law needs to be Y, in this case, mm-hmm. returning abortion to the states is the right constitutional result. Where in the law does gradualism come into play in that? I think a formalist would say that's almost an abuse of authority. I mean, you, you, you're saying what the mm-hmm. law is. We, we can't wait another two years the law should be this today how do you respond to that potential critique i think someone like adler would make
1: yeah i I think it's a very serious critique and i uh i'm not sure the the formalist club would have me but i count myself a formalist too (laughs) uh and i i think part of the answer is that i believe there are formal sources of authority that allow for considerable judicial discretion including the article 3 vesting of judicial power i mean the judicial power strikes me, you know, the, when power is talked about in the Constitution, it often comes with pragmatic discretion. Uh, and so I think that that has a historical pedigree, it has a textual pedigree, a, a minimum in the vesting clause of Article 3. And it makes a lot of sense, given our legal tradition, for there to be this not unlimited, but significant um, opportunity for, for gradualism as a result of uh, pragmatic discretion.
0: So I want to be clear on this, that you're the one who raised mm-hmm. pragmatism, not me. So therefore, I get to talk about Judge Posner because you mentioned pragmatism <laughs> as opposed to me bringing Judge Posner up, which I do once a podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And I've said this before on this podcast, this should make you feel better about your theory if you, if you respect Posner at all. Um, he told me many, many times that he thought taking real-life, on-the-ground consequences into account when formulating legal rules was absolutely part of what judges ought to do, that it's part of their job not to, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if you can cite him for this because it's in my tape conversations with him, He may, but I, but I think he wrote about this in How Judges Think, if you want to cite, um, I, I think. Um, but he definitely, I have him on tape 10 times saying this, that that no, especially the Supreme Court, leaving aside you know lower courts, especially the Supreme Court, it's their job to make sure that the consequences of their decisions are the best they can be given the circumstances. It feels like, to me, your theory is a great one, that this is is going to be a cataclysmic change. It's going to cause all kinds of ripples, this overruling of Roe and Casey in one case right away, that lower courts are going to have to struggle with abortion-adjacent issues, like can states stop people from leaving their own state to get abortions, a hundred other issues like that. Um, David Cohen was on this podcast a while back, and David did a great job of explaining the dozens of legal issues that are still out there about abortion. Abortion is not leaving the courts. It's just not. Um, so I think Posner, if he heard this, would say, no, Richard's absolutely right. If the court can mitigate the the disruption of this overruling of, you know, one of the most important cases in American history, or
1: two of them, then
0: then the court should do that. Does that give you some, some, some good feelings?
1: <laughs> uh, sure. I'm always happy to have someone vicariously, uh, vouching <laughs> for my conclusions. That's all I'll take that. Uh, I think, I think the, the Posnerian ethos, though, is, is different from mine. Okay. I think, I don't think Posner would even aspirationally or half heartedly call himself a formalist, for example. No, he would uh, never. Maybe you. Can tell me. Right, exactly. So, so there is a bit, there's a difference there. And, and I think maybe to put the difference in Posnerian or attempt to put it in Posnerian terms, um, when, when Posner does his functional pragmatic analysis, to my mind, he often underweighted, um, the, the kind of uh, role limitations associated with formal sources of law. Uh-huh. And, and so I, I, I mean, I'm sure there are many times when he perceived that he was heeding those kinds of pragmatic concerns. You know, I don't think he thought of himself as, as a robed emperor when he was at the bench. I think he thought that he, he had to read some text, for example. Uh, so I don't want to character him too much, but, but you might think there's a kind of, um, Again, in Posnerian terms, you might think there's a kind of balancing of, of different kinds of considerations there. And I would put the formal considerations higher on the scale than I think he would.
0: I think you would, too. Um, but I think he would, I mean, we can't ask him because he is very sick, but I think he would love your theory, to be honest. Whether you would like him to like your theory or not, I am 99% sure, and I think I'm a pretty good judge of uh, this.
1: He, he would love your theory. I think he thinks it's, it would be exactly right well i would love to hear that and the book that you mentioned um that he wrote you know I remember reading that book uh and it has been very influential for my thinking i mean it's 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 rare to have uh, a judge who is that thoughtful and candid about what about what they're doing uh as a judge i mean it happens i I'm not saying he's the only one but but that's a real resource that book um and it's a resource for critics and it's a, cr- a resource for supporters as well um
0: one last thing um i was at dinner Saturday night with a bunch of people, including a former Justice O'Connor law clerk, who I really respect. Uh, She was one of her very early law clerks, um, and she is still good friends. Justice O'Connor, everyone knows, also has Alzheimer's, like Judge Posner does. Um, So we can't ask her either. Um, But um, I'm thinking about Justice O'Connor and your theory, because I think, I I actually think Justice O'Connor would love it as well. I, I, I think she would think, if we can find some suites, uh, we're going to overturn Roan Casey. It's it's, inevi- it's inevitable. We had the, the votes are there. So that, that that she wouldn't want to do that, obviously, but that that's done. Now the question is how, when, how do we do it? I think she would love the idea of a suite kind of a, 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 a this is what's going to happen, folks. You have a couple years to prepare, you're to prepare, whatever it is. Get ready for it. Um, plan for it. Have your politics deal with it. Not yet. But in a, in a year or whatever time period, I think she would have loved that. And, and it's interesting to me that that um, the reasons she would have loved that again, I think, are not reasons you would agree with. You know, I think she tried to find the sweet spot politically. I don't hear you saying that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think I'm wrong about what I'm saying about O'Connor?
1: I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think the O'Connor uh, form of this kind of prudential gradualism may have been a little different. I mean, it's been in the news lately because of Grutter and the right uh, the – uh, Timestamp placed on right. affirmative action right. um, uh, is being litigated right now. I mean, it's, you know, it's pending right. for the U.S. Supreme Court again, and, and there's a lot of debate at the oral argument about what what to do with that that kind of sunset provision in Grutter on on how long until how many years until for, for the non right for now. the non
0: lawyers, Richard um, I mean, yeah. O'Connor in Grutter said we we she used the word expect, which was a terrible word choice. We expect this to be unnecessary in 25 years. I wish she had said we hope. But she said we expect. Anyway, go
1: ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And so you're right. So what, what that statement even means was, was of course in, in debate. Um, but I think, I think the fact that's there is, is supportive of your, of your basic point there. Now, on the, the, the form of it that I think you're plausibly attributing to her, in other words, trying to attack in terms of where the country is right now. And I know Justice Kagan has publicly in, in a speech, uh, said some favorable things about that, that kind of approach. Um, I, I worry about that form of it. A bit. Um, I worry because, uh, I'm not sure the justices always know, uh, where the boundary lines are, uh, in terms of where the, where the public is at any given moment. On the other hand, I, I think there's something real there. I, you know, much like Justice Kagan, I think there's something, there's something important about, about the court thinking about how its pattern of decisions relates to, uh, broader ideological trends in the country. So I, I don't want to endorse that that approach, but I think there's something there to take seriously and maybe learn from.
0: Me too. And I'm conflicted about it as well. And I want to say, Richard, about your work. We're going to talk about your, you've written a lot. We're going to talk about an article called Personal Precedent at the Supreme Court in a minute. One of the things about your work that I do think is different than most other scholars, at least when I read your work, and this is totally meant as a compliment. I hope it comes out this way. Okay. Your work makes my head explode because. Uh, which is good because it makes it's provocative and interesting. And I and I read it and I go, I don't know if I agree with this. Like I really don't, right. but it's serious. It's thoughtful. Right. He may be right. And now I got to wrestle with it. And there's so much, frankly, law review scholarship out there that doesn't make me feel that way. Um, but yours always has. And, and that, I mean that sincerely. And 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 this, this article, um, gradualism, uh, should prevailed in Dobbs, I think is a great example of that. On, 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 on many scores, I think, God, that would have been better for the country, for women, for people, and, e- and even for the Supreme Court. And on the other hand, I think, but what lets them do that once they've decided what the law is? And my final question about this article is, you do have precedent for this. I mean, it's a boring precedent, but you have precedent. I mean, and, 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 I, and I was the victim of it in some bizarre ways. Yeah, I know. I knew that would get you. So I report, I, I've, said this, I've told this story before on this podcast, so people forgive me. I reported to work uh, on July 15th or August 1st, 1983, which was after the Supreme Court had said the bankruptcy courts were unconstitutional in Northern mm-hmm. Pipeline. Uh, literally, they said these courts are unconstitutional. They can no longer exist in their current form. But go ahead. Keep doing this unconstitutional stuff for a while. Congress will give you, I forget what it was, Richard, but six months or eight months, whatever Mm -hmm. to fix this. uh, Congress didn't fix it. Um, They they gave him another warning. Congress didn't fix it again. And finally, the court said, okay, now you have to do it. My judge said to me, as I've said before, and I love, my judge passed, but I loved him. He was a very conservative politician from Georgia um, of the old 1970s variety. And he really tried to do what was right. And I showed up for work and he said, no matter what, and he was the chief judge. So it was his responsibility to figure out what to do with the Northern District of Georgia bankruptcy courts, which were literally unconstitutional as, we, um, and he said to me, I don't want bankruptcy in my courtroom. Just get it out of here. I don't care how you do it. Get it down to the, to the, I'll, I'll review their memos. Anyway, he was so frustrated because he didn't know what to do because the court had said they were unconstitutional, ah, but keep going. But maybe that was the right idea. Maybe that gradualism there that this is going to happen soon Congress do something about this. The court did that. I mean, they did exactly what you suggested. Um, and I think it worked out okay in the end. There were some cha- chaotic years. But doing it the other way, I think, declaring the bankruptcy courts unconstitutional today and you ha- and they have and they have to stop working today until Congress fixes this would have created all kinds of problems, right? I know you're not a bankruptcy guy, but you get my point, right?
1: yeah I, I definitely do and i do think that's an yet another form of gradualism i mean there are many different pragmatic strategies available and that one was kind of popular at this at the court for a time and, and kind of has waned in popularity the idea of, of issuing a big decision and then just withholding the mandate yeah. so that there's a kind of um a grace period you might say post decision yeah uh so just, let me briefly before i forget thank you for, the, for those remarks i do take that as a compliment that's exactly huh. what i uh <laughs> would want a reader to think and say so thank you that, that, that that's no. um that, that is, you know, more, more valuable to me, uh, as a, assessment of work than just saying you agree. Um, uh, that, that something is being, is being added that is disruptive, you know, disruptive of how someone thinks about something in a fruitful way, even if it's not agreement. Um, so on, on the Northern Pipeline form of gradualism, uh, yeah, I think, I think my impression is that there are two downsides to that approach, which doesn't mean that it's not a good approach, but I think there are kind of two reasons why that became less, Popular. So, one reason I think is that it makes the tension, the formal tension you alluded to before really stark because they've declared something to be illegal and right. then they say, keep going. Right? So, it maximizes that, that tension. Uh, whereas the, the one last chance thing that I attribute to the Chief Justice and the, to the earlier period of the Roberts Court, it's, it's not that it, in, in a way it, it, it has a different advantage. By being more tentative, it, it lessens that tension, but it also gives the, the court a chance to learn and change what it is going to do. Right. So so, the mandate approach has the benefit of allowing a transition period, but doesn't have those other advantages I just mentioned. Uh, so which you know maybe doesn't mean it's it's a bad approach, but it's a different approach that has different pros and cons. And the other thing I'll just say briefly that I think was was kicking around that time. you tell me what I'd love to hear your more of your your take on how that was perceived at the time. But I also think there may have been a greater awareness of a risk with gradualism that I think also attends the kinds of gradualism that I uh, tend to like which is that there could be a set of cases where the court is, is afraid or inhibited or too cautious to go big. And the alternative then is to do nothing. And I think that's kind of what the abortion rights advocates were, were kind of playing for in Dobbs itself, and, and that they, in a way, uh, arguably indirectly succeeded that in Casey. In other words, if you tell the court, you've got to do something big or do nothing, and the court is sheepish about going big, maybe they'll do nothing. Whereas if you give them this third option of gradualism, there's probably a set of cases. We can debate about how big it is or which case, set of cases it is, but there's probably some set of cases where the court would say, ah, oh, now that I have this third option, I'm going to take the half step and then I'm going to take the full step. Whereas I wouldn't have taken any step if there weren't the half step. Right. Uh, and I think there's a sense in which the, the mandate scenario could be viewed as, as playing into that, uh, as well.
0: I don't know how I feel about it, which is, again, a compliment, because I I usually know how I feel about things. People (laughs) people know I'm reasonably opinionated, you know. Um, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about this. I guess uh, something hit me when you were saying the all or nothing. Um, Jamal Green was on this podcast a long time ago talking about his his now not-so-new book, but his excellent book, Um, I Mm -hmm. Don't Agree With His Solutions. But Jamal wrote a great book comparing how we do judicial review to European countries.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a it's a very good book.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and yeah. my actually my constitutional commentary review came out last week, so um, mm. and it was mostly favorable. I just disagree about some of the solutions. But one of the things I think Jamal alludes to in that book, if not outright says, is um, in America there has to be winners and losers, and there has to be this mm. all or nothing type approach to constitutional law. Europe is much more willing to give a little, take a little, mm. to write opinions like Casey, frankly, because Casey was kind of a, and, I, and one of the critiques of Jamal's book that I stand by is he understates how much Casey was exactly what he's asking for. Um, he, mm. he, he should have talked more about that, I think, because Casey is a prime example of giving a little bit to one side, a little bit to another side. And then the lower courts can flesh out what undue burden means. And it, maybe it means a lot. Maybe it means a little. We'll find out in the future, but it's a compromised type of opinion. Um, I think Casey is exactly what Jamal is talking about. This gradualism approach, which um, does not allow or or doesn't allow, but um, suggests all or nothing isn't the only way. I think that's why I like it because I think very few things in life are all or nothing. I mean, there are some things, but there are very few things that are all or nothing. Most things are gray and most things are in the middle. And your approach, I think, gives the court a gray option that maybe doesn't have an act. Think with Northern Pipeline, I agree with you. It's different to say something is is legal until we say it's illegal is different than saying something is illegal and now you can but you can still do it those are different scenarios. But the idea I think is the same. The bankruptcy courts couldn't just stop. Like that would have that would have been wildly difficult for the parties thousands and thousands of people all over America whose their cases are now on hold and these are people and you know these are companies often in bankruptcy they can't afford to be on hold for that long. So I I think this gradualism idea is an excellent one. I think the formalist critique of it is not persuasive. I think the only critique I would give of it is the following, and then we'll move on. Mm -hmm. But this actually may get us right, well, it may get us closer to your other article I want to talk about, personal precedent. Um, It does obviously enlarge the discretion of people who I think have way too much discretion to begin with. (laughs) So that worries me a teeny, teeny bit. Um, I think it's outweighed by the positives of your proposal, but are you concerned at all that maybe I, I want to say the wrong hands? I mean, in ill-suited hands,
1: this gradualism approach could be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think in in the wrong hands, judicial power in general is dangerous. Yes, right? it's, it's, it's especially in the systems we have. It's it's it has many facets and, and yes. many um, downsides. So I, I I think maybe what you're healthily pointing toward is the need for judgment and maybe a broader cultural ethos of, of care um, and, and care that might sometimes require a big step. And I, I think that may be, you know, that's kind of the formless response or a formless response to the point about everything being in the gray zone, which I, in some sense is true. Uh, I, think, I think the Alito-Dobbs opinion, frankly, made a pretty strong pitch for the view that I'm disagreeing with in the sense that I read part of the Dobbs majority uh, to be saying there are prudential reasons why we have to go big. Why, why, even though it's maybe a gray zone, a, a kind of bright line, big step move is necessary here. Now, I I think that's kind of ironic, given other things in the opinion that disclaim pragmatism, and yes. so there's a kind of tension or contradiction within the majority. I think, um, but but there is there is room. This is kind of goes back to our discussion of posner. There's room for a posnerian pragmatist to care about uh, formal lines because there are advantages to having. Uh, rules. I think of my, my colleague here at, uh, UVA, Fred Schauer's work on, on rules has another big influence for me. Um, uh, is, is that rules are over and under inclusive. And that, that doesn't mean that rules are, are un, undesirable. It means that's exactly why they're often desirable, in fact. Um, on the Casey point you mentioned earlier, that's really interesting. Um, I, I, I haven't thought deeply about this, but my initial reaction in the dispute you just set up between yourself and Jamal was to agree with Jamal, actually. Uh-huh and i i wonder and tell me you think about this. this is kind of another generational point kind of going back to northern pipeline i wonder if if that's partly a product of me and jamal being post casey people because i've heard i've heard people who were around for casey describe it the way you did many times and i, I maybe maybe the justices in the plurality thought that too but if you're i wonder as a speculation if you if you came up in the law after casey then that kind of um, standard-like uh context sensitivity that Jamal is discussing favorably in his book doesn't really seem to be there anymore. It may- maybe there's more of it there than there was before Casey, but right. th- you see, interesting. It's kind of like a baseline question. If you're if you're acculturated to a certain baseline, you perceive the state of affairs differently. One
0: hundred percent. Thank you yeah. for making me feel old. We'll call this <laughs> podcast now. You
1: said, you said that I was I was younger. That that made my day. I mean, I, I, <laughs> so so I, I'm sorry to not return the favor appropriately.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Um, no, what I remember about Casey the most is, and people don't, young people don't get this, is. Even before Twitter, even before Facebook, even before the Internet, effectively before the Internet, we were all waiting. I mean, we were sitting around waiting. The world was waiting for this decision in a way that the world waited back then, which was a very different way than we deal with Supreme Court. I started teaching in 91. Casey is 92. I can't express to you how much different it was to have no direct access immediately mm. for non-journalists who are actually in the room to the, you know, to, to the opinion. And, uh, we just couldn't turn on the internet and listen to the, I, I got started most, I did a lot of radio in my early life, but, but I, my radio career really started with Citizens United. And I remember a, a, a radio show calling me an hour after the opinion or 45 minutes after the opinion saying, can you come on and talk about it? I said, it's 140 pages long or something with concurrences, dissents, no, it came out an hour ago. But at least I had it in my hands. At least I could look at it. Back in 1992, we couldn't even do that very well. Um, so I, I do think there's. I do think there was a pre-Casey and post-Casey. That's an article I might write. I like that idea since I'm both mm. pre and post. Anyway, mm. uh, listen, uh, what, what's the name of the book that this essay is in? Uh,
1: the chapter I wrote? Yeah, the chapter, yeah. Uh, I think the tentative title is uh, Roe v. Dobbs, but I'm not sure that yeah, that's, I think the that's right. Okay. That. Yeah. I just yeah. want
0: people to read this piece. Should gradualism have prevailed Dobbs and Dobbs, you can find it on SSRN in, on Richard's page. Um, I don't know my phone's on airplane mode. So if that was my phone that went off, I can't understand it in any event. Um, I apologize for that. Um, okay. So I want to, um, I, I, I listen to a sports talk show all the time called the Dan Levertard show, which by the way, everybody should listen to because it's not about sports as much as culture and 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 Dan has this um, thing called "Look at Me, Louie, When people say things, you know that they're not really saying to to be self congratulatory, but they are. Um, I'm about to do a "Look at Me, Louie thing, so I apologize mm-hmm. in advance. Uh, Harvard wrote me and asked me to review your. I can say it's not because it's it's been accepted. Your article, "Personal Precedent at the Supreme Court." And when I saw – and and I'm I'm always flattered when Harvard and Yale – they don't publish my stuff very often, but they do ask me to review stuff, although I do have a piece in Harvard. But um, I saw the title, Personal Precedent at the Supreme Court, and knowing your previous work, I thought, huh, now that's going to be interesting. And I have a feeling this is going to raise all – this is really going to make my head spin. Um, I read the piece, and I wrote back to Harvard that I thought they unequivocally – that's not why they did it, but they should unequivocally publish it. Uh, I said, I am not even, I, again, I don't know if I agree with it. I think it raises a lot of troubling issues, but I think it raises a lot of issues we don't talk about. And my view of legal scholarship is get people to talk about things they wouldn't otherwise talk about. That's a big part of provocative and important legal scholarship. Tell us the thesis of your article. Is it out yet? I don't think it's out yet, but it's coming out. It's out. It just came out. It yeah. okay, just came out. Personal precedent at the Supreme Court and the Harvard Law Review. What's the thesis of this piece?
1: Yeah, the basic idea is that the justices often care more about consistency with their own personal past decisions than with consistency um, as to institutional precedents of the court. And so, I'll give I'll give one example of this. This, this kind of a um, maybe a surprising example is is Casey itself, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, often viewed as the the leading example of the Supreme Court taking institutional precedence seriously, namely. Uh, Roe v. Wade and not overruling it, uh, even though, uh, it seems like uh, s- some members of the, the Casey majority had, had serious doubts about it, it appears. Um, <clears throat> and relying on institutional sorry decisis. And what I, what I say in that example is if you look closely at what the opinions say, there's personal precedent all over the place. And, uh, in particular, a lot of concern, uh, with the opinions that Justice O'Connor had personally written separately, often just for herself. Uh, earlier in her tenure as a justice and and that actually is what became the rule in, in Casey to a great extent is Casey adjusts but largely adopts the O'Connor personal precedent uh, and there are other features uh, in the even the joint opinion and certainly in the other opinions. I mean the dissenters say well i 've been dissenting on this before and, right. and the concur- <laughs> and the concurring justices say, well you know here 's my version of it, and really the only justice who actually says Roe itself was right was Blackman." Uh who had written Roe. So that that is, is really an example of him hewing to his own personal precedent. So that, that's that's kind of the, the, the basic point is that is it it's it's pervasively the case that personal precedent matters a lot and often not always, but often more than institutional precedent.
0: So that descriptive account I, I think is obviously accurate. I mean, you know, uh which is not to say justices don't change their minds. So I want to ask you about that for a second. So in nineteen eighty-nine, Justice Kennedy joins Justice Rehnquist's dissenting opinion in Webster, which calls for Mm -hmm. a rational basis test to be applied to abortion regulations, which wouldn't have overruled Roe. I don't think Rehnquist actually says let's overrule Roe, but by saying we're going to replace Roe's framework with a rational basis test, that's a flat overturning of Roe. So so Kennedy joins that and then changes his mind just three years later. One more example: Justice Blackman joins an opinion called Usury back in 1970s, uh, basically adopting kind of a, a form of the anti-commandeering doctrine. Uh, and Blackman says, "I'm not sure about this. I don't agree completely with the majority, but I do agree. I think the result is right in this case." Just seven years later or so, he completely changes his mind and votes to overrule a case he joined. He votes to overrule a case that he joined. A result. Now, now he did. He did say in his concurring, "I'm not sure about this," but still, he joined the opinion and then he overrules it. You talk a lot about following personal precedent in this piece. I think we all agree. I hope we all agree that the rule of law requires judges to substantially follow their own prior decisions—not 100 percent by any means, but substantially. But what do you think happens when Kennedy and Blackman and others have done it? Um, just officially change their minds. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, and indifferent thing? Does that fit with your thesis? What do you What do you take from that?
1: Yeah, so it can definitely be a good thing. It definitely also can happen. Uh, so there's there's a lot going on here. So one version of the claim is that personal precedent uh, has has traction. They care about it. It has attractive force. They they feel committed to it. Maybe in a way more than to institutional precedents, which they do not. Uh, subscribe. But just because it has force like that doesn't mean it's always going to be the force that predominates. So it could be new understandings, new realizations um that that could defeat personal precedent, much like on the conventional view, new considerations can defeat institutional stare decisis uh, as well. And I think you can see that, that when that occurs, the justices often seem to care about it. Uh, I talk about a couple examples in the piece, for example, uh, instance where Justice Sotomayor, for example, really kind of fessed up to the fact that she was changing her a view of a certain issue and she explained why and the fact that she felt there was a need to explain why she personally changed her mind on some issues uh, I think is, is a testament to the, the fact that this uh, personal precedent is is doing work even if it doesn't always uh, carry the day nor should it always carry the day because we all are learning um, new information. Some of these cases can also be viewed as tensions between personal precedents where they, the justice didn't realize that one precedent pointed one way in their own minds and another pointed a different way. And maybe one last comment on this. So there's, there's so much more to say, but one last comment on this is that you know if you take the, the example of Justice Kennedy, who's a justice who is relatively willing to to change his views mm-hmm. and to adjust his views, and he's he's spoken publicly about this um, in some very important uh, cases. There's some, you know there's some areas where he's he's very committed and very consistent year in and year out, decade in and decade out. There are other areas where he's you know, people know he's more movable uh, and proved proved to be uh, more uh, persuadable. And I guess if you look at that situation, it's not as though the alternative is the institutional precedent is what's making the difference. You know, what's going on there is itself kind of a function of personal precedent. His, his personal philosophy of judging is just more open to change. And we can understand that in all respects with respect to institutional precedent and personal precedent. And we can understand that attitude itself as a form of personal precedent or personal jurisprudence. Uh, and you, know, I'm, I'm doing this uh, so, uh, follow-on work about this that that um, you've you've already helped me with uh, in, in prior conversation. And, and part of what I'm I'm realizing is that viewed broadly, this idea of personal precedent actually is something that people talk about very much. It, it's kind of this judicial philosophy idea that people bandy about, uh, including people who are very formalistic about the law, very. Um, um, very much of that mindset. It seems, like Justice Barrett, for example, she she talks during her confirmation process about about her judicial philosophy, and, and it's about her. You know, it's her judicial philosophy is to be formalist. But that that structure of explanation itself reveals that there's a personal foundation to the impersonal um, mm-hmm. uh, set of rules that results. You know,
0: Justice Blackman said in the Garcia case, which overturned Osorio, which he had joined. He said the test that the majority articulated in that case, the traditional state function test, has turned out to be unworkable and unprincipled in the lower courts. I, he, I, I think maybe you're, I mean, it's such a great example. I mean, he was on the fence, he signed on to something, he saw that it didn't work, and he explained why he was changing his mind. And, and Richard, one of the things I love about your article, even though I don't know if this is directly. In the piece, I read it a while back, as you know, but um, uh, it, it seems to me, you know, my wife and I have changed our minds a couple times on pretty big parenting issues, now, not because the kids got older, which of course you do, but just because we changed our minds. And we went to the kids and, uh, you know, the teenagers, and that's that's a hard thing, <laughs> but we went to the teenagers and we said, we've thought more about this. And you know what? Maybe we were wrong the first time. Let's give this what you wanted to try. And we're trying to teach them. There's nothing wrong with that. In my mind, judges, as long as they explain it, and that's a big gift to me. They have to explain it. But assuming they explain it, judges changing their minds is a good thing. Because these are hard issues. That's what I loved about your piece. These are hard issues. I've changed my mind over the years on a number of different constitutional law issues. After studying them, and, and you know, no one cares what I think, and I have no power. They have tremendous power. We all care what they think. I think it's a great thing they change their minds um, when they when they explain it. And your piece gives them a little bit more license to do that. Was that part mm-hmm. of your thinking?
1: Yeah. So that that that's really interesting. Um, so I do have these suggestions at the end of the piece about ways to make personal precedent work better. Right. Um, and some of them are related to the things that, that you just said. So there's a there's a, a line I, I quote somewhere um, from uh, Professor um, Justin Driver that when, when, a, when a justice changes their mind, that's, that's, that's good, that's great, but they should explain what happened on the road to Damascus, is what he says. Yes, yes, uh, as, as kind of it's yes. sim- very similar to what you're saying. That, yes. that you should be kind of holding yourself accountable yes. to your uh, to your change of heart, and that you know I would say that's a form of personal precedent mattering. It's just an example where it, where it, the way it matters is by forcing this reckoning of, of views. Uh, and I think that's very often good, in particular in times like like the ones I think that we're in, that are highly polarized, highly partisan, where legal culture is high, is highly polarized, uh, because there's a major risk that justices will do what seems uh, easy or politically convenient now, and a major check on that is their personal precedence. Now, J- Justice Kagan has, has publicly said that institutional precedent plays that role because institutional precedent is made at time one and then political situations change and then it's harder at time two to change the rules to help your favorite political party or ideology or whatever. But I think it's really the personal precedent that, that is more likely to be able to do that, to do that work. And it does that work better if people have personal precedent and if, as you say, we expect them to to do what they often do, which is to to reckon with it. So I think personal precedent can actually be an antidote to hackery. Another kind of suggestion I make in the paper uh, that may be a little bit different from the th- what you were suggesting a minute ago is that I wouldn't want the wrong kind of personal precedent to be made. I wouldn't want justices to rush to uh, express strong personal views. So th- that's another tension in my in my in my approach because I do want there to be personal precedent to play the constraining role I just described. Uh, the checking role, but I. But on the other hand, I don't want justices to feel like the way to promote their brand, right? Because uh, they're they're celebrities now. They're they're second tier celebrities. It's just to opine on things as grandly and quickly as possible. Cause that you know, that's adverse to my gradual instincts and ca- care and caution and so forth. So there's a kind of tension there where maybe we could we could expect justices to have personal judicial philosophies or judicial, personal precedents and and hold them to them to some degree, but at the same time we don't expect them to generate those views at the drop of a hat. We expect them to do it in a careful, uh, accreted way.
0: So I have one very, very big question about this piece um, that I'm going to ask you in a second. We're running out of time, so I want to make sure I get to it. But I have to improvise because you said something that I, I can't let go and remarked. Mm-hmm. You said change of heart. That's mm-hmm. what you said. That was your phrase, when justice have a change of heart. I think you know, I think people listen to this podcast know, that my view is constitutional law is almost all heart and things like that, as opposed to textualism, originalism, any other ism you can think of. Um, Change of heart was such an interesting phrase to describe a Supreme Court justice changing their mind. I don't want to make too much of this now. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But did you really mean change of heart or did you mean change of thinking or did you mean both?
1: Or neither. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I wasn't thinking about it deeply when I said it. I, I think you are picking up on something, um, important there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe, maybe there are two ways those things can come apart. It strikes me. So one is that in the, in the moment of, of applying the law or, or at, or liquidating the law or ascertaining the particular direction the law applies, sometimes the law requires consideration of non-legal um, ideas like maybe empathy for example could, could come in as bounded by law and so that's one way. Well, You're to, never going to be in the but,
0: Supreme Court Richard I'm sorry at least not for a Republican president because <laughs> empathy doesn't count <laughs> well, I, sorry
1: Yeah I, not, I wasn't too worried about that that danger but, <laughs> but, but I think actually if you listen carefully to sophisticated conservative formalists as long as you have that bounded by law Maybe it doesn't play well on TV, but they, they actually say, they, they know there's indeterminacy. I agree. It, it, yeah. I agree. yeah. So, so that, anyway, that's, that's, that's one thing. But, but I think the the maybe more interesting, uh, to me at the moment possibility, I think you're also capturing there, getting at there, is that, is that there's a kind of pre-legal stage of the analysis. And that, 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 that's, that's where my thinking is increasingly taking me. Like, go back to Justice Barrett, who I think is a, extremely thoughtful and she was an academic writing on these these things uh, for for a long time. Uh we'll, we'll agree and disagree a, on that but go on. Okay, well she she was you disagree that she was an academic writing on these no, things? No, I disagree
0: she's thoughtful. Go
1: on. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I think she's thoughtful. So, uh there there's this whole f- uh, formal legal framework happening uh in uh, that she puts forward, but it does seem like there's a pre-legal um affinity-based commitment to that formal structure and it, it is plausible to me to describe that as a, an attitude or, or at least partly an attitude or an affect or an aspect of heart uh, and so I, I yeah i hadn't i hadn't meant it in this in this these theoretical ways that you were suggesting but i think maybe maybe i maybe i ought to have yeah
0: um, i i think although this is the first time we've actually actually met met we've had a lot of correspondence so you'll take this in the spirit with which it is intended I think self-reflecting on why you use the word heart would be interesting for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As opposed to other things. When, one thing about Barrett before I ask you my big question. Um, sorry, but I just ha- it wouldn't be me if I didn't say this. She joined an opinion that prevented the state of Washington from disciplining a high school football coach from praying with the students at the 50-yard line, under, which was they claimed to be a violation of the free exercise clause. Not the the establishment clause. The establishment clause is really mostly irrelevant to this other than that was the defense the school used. But what the court did say was Washington can't do this because of the free exercise clause and there isn't, or the the free speech clause, either one. Um, And there's not a syllable, much less a word in the opinion about the original meaning of the free exercise clause. So for Justice Barrett, who, and for all of them, who claim to be originalists, to strike down, talk about federalism, to strike down a local decision by a local body on a local issue without one reference, one syllable about the original meaning of the provision they're claiming it violates, seems to me to show some form of deviation from their personal presidential type structure.
1: So it's interesting. I'll, I'll say something, uh, kind of defending yeah. that her from that criticism and maybe criticizing her on a different ground. Yeah. Uh, and I, I should say I, I, have to read carefully exactly what she wrote as an academic to maybe fully adjudicate this these accusations. Okay. I have read it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a while for me for some of them, but yeah. Uh, so on, on the main thing you said there, uh, whether that's exactly consistent with what she personally has said, I, I can't, I can't say for sure, but, Surely it's consistent with the overall way that precedent operates because I think precedent operates as a permission that, that the, and, and, you know, uh, Dick Fallon has a new piece that's making a similar point about selective originalism, uh, uh, partly uh, about this precedent's permission idea as well, that, that the way precedent often operates is not the conventionally understood way of binding the court, it's by creating an area where people with different views of the merits can come together and agree, well, at least we're going to follow precedent. And it, the way you just described that case makes it sound like it could fit that bill. Uh, and to the extent that uh, the originalists are viewing precedent as a permission, I think that's probably – maybe it's inconsistent. I'm, I can't adjudicate that right now, but but it seems like that's a good thing. That's how we should be thinking about precedent because it's unrealistic and probably undesirable to treat precedent as a – institutional precedent as a serious constraint. Institutional precedent works better, I think, uh, as a permission. Now, having said that – so Hold on, Hold
0: on. Let me be clear yeah. so the audience is not confused here. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about horizontal precedent precedent. Here. Obviously, That's vertical right. precedent is binding and needs to be. I want to be clear
1: about that. So I, I have heterodox views even on that. Really? Uh, on the, on the role of vertical. I think the vertical story is more complicated, but yeah, I'm focusing on horizontally. The, yeah. My claims are much yeah. more true horizontally. I just, I just want to, to be clear that. about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, for me, the place where I, I see Justice Barrett, um, perhaps running into more trouble has to do with the, the grand assertionari in Dobbs itself. And you know, the Dobbs the Dobbs petition was relisted over and over and over again. Yeah. And it was right after uh, Barrett joined the court. And I wonder, and this is just pure speculation, but I wonder if part of the reason for the relisting was that Justice Barrett was trying to figure out not her views on the merits, but her views on the proper use of the certiorari power. Right. Because in her, in her writings as an academic and in her testimony, um, in the Senate, she really emphasized that the certiorari power was a discretionary power that promoted stability in the law. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that she said something that 100% contradicted the grant and Dobbs. I don't even know that she voted for the grant of certain Dobbs. I mean, her vote wouldn't have been required for the grant of certain Dobbs. So I'm not trying to level any, you know, conclusive accusation here at all, but it do, it does make me wonder. Here's one way to put it: To the extent Justice Barrett had a view on the decision to vote to grant for certain jobs, which she surely had a view on what was that view? On? What should it have been? And I, I wonder if it should have been, and maybe it was even, or don't do it.
0: So I think I'm the only person. There's there's one other lo- article from long ago, but I think I'm the only person who has written publicly many many times that cert grants the vote on cert grants should be public, that we should know who voted to grant cert, who voted to deny cert. Etc. It's one of the most important things they do, and there's no reason for it to be secret. Um, uh, Adam Liptak once said, and and Mark Tushnet has said, that won't work because they'll just figure out some way around it. Um, But I I still think we should do that. Um, Akhil Lamar, who originally was against that view, then came to me one day and said, well, you know what, what if we did it at the end? At the end of every term, we find out who voted for cert and who didn't after the case has been decided. Um, and, And I think that's not. That's better than nothing. I, I I would take that because it turns out, for example, as I mentioned before, that we know from Justice Blackman's papers that Justice Rehnquist almost never, if never, voted to grant certain civil rights cases. He just didn't do it. Um, um, and to evaluate Chief Justice Rehnquist's overall career, which is something historians should do, he would. We haven't had that many chief justices in America. Um, you know, we should know what how he voted
1: in those cases. And anyway, that that's an aside. But I, I do can think – Can I say a quick yeah, – can I yeah. make a comment? That's, that's yeah. really interesting. I not thought of it. This. So you're kind of focusing on the accountability aspect of it, which I yeah. think is a great thing to, point, to yeah. focus on. But it, it, one way to view it from my uh, my prism is that what you're basically advocating for is the creation of a ton more personal precedent. Yes. You, you, may be pub- you, may be, you may be publicizing it. But, but you also may be creating it because if the justices are voting in secret and they believe they're voting in secret, then that's, that's not going to have the same kind of personal commitment quality. They're not going to feel as tied to that. Uh, whereas if you publicize it, then it becomes part of the brand. It becomes observable. They, they have to think about it more. Maybe they may feel more wedded to it in the future. So, so those, those are two different kinds of effects. And, and it's, you may be right. I have to think more about this, but it's not immediately obvious to me that, that, the net effect would be an improvement because take, take your example there. I think you said Rehnquist, right? Who voted yeah. a certain way, yeah? In a way that I think you you agree is problematic, yeah. Um, you know, one possible upshot is when we would know more about Rehnquist, You know, we we have great understanding. Maybe Rehnquist even would change his behavior. Right. That's maybe the most interesting mm-hmm. possibility. Maybe he yep. would say, "Oh wow, I don't want to look like I'm." Just that's part right of it. my point. Yeah, so that's interesting. But there's another possibility, which is that someone could think, "Oh wow, I've voted this way and times." I'm going to vote that way forever, and I'm going to vote that way on the merits when the case is ultimately uh, issue is ultimately granted cert. And so, so having some room for this, like permission for flexibility for not having precedent, you know, it. All I want to say is it it's not it's not immediately obvious to me which way the, the net effect is.
0: Okay. I still haven't gotten to my big question, and we're running out of time. Yeah, sorry, because, yeah. but no, no, it's my fault. It's not your fault. I'm yeah. a terrible host. We're just going to go <laughs> long, and people can turn it off. Okay. Um I do want to say, I think, on on, on the president on the tertiary issue, whether I'm yeah. right or wrong, can we at least agree it's wildly under theorized? Like I, I, if you do research on this issue, you're not going to find very
1: many articles even discussing. Yeah, but, but one of the few you're going to find is by is by then Professor Barrett. So but yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah, there should be more attention to it. I agree. Yeah. One last thing,
0: (laughs) sorry, before the big question, because you mentioned Fred Schauer at UVA. He's a legend, I think, in our business. He was also at this – he came in virtually to this conference I was at in two weeks. So to me, the most fascinating thing about Fred Schauer, who's a a big figure in our world, um, is when I started teaching law school in 1991 when critical legal studies, which was this radical leftist movement for those listening who don't know, um, and and that came out of the 70s and 80s, led by Mark Tushnet, Duncan Kennedy – and a few others where um, they made very grandiose claims about the indeterminacy of law, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. But Schauer wrote a piece called Easy Cases, which I can tell you I was there at the time, Richard, changed the debate. It was so influential. It was so important. I love Fred. But all that piece said was we shouldn't make grandiose claims about the law based on the five or six big cases the Supreme Court decides a year. That's not true. I shouldn't have said that. I'm minimizing that work. But that's basically what he said. And I agree. We shouldn't make grandiose – and that's that's where the crits went wrong, making grandiose claims about the rule of law based on a a unique judicial institution in all of world history that decides important cases. But (laughs) I do think the Supreme Court's five or six cases a year that we care about define our country, define our people – and, are, and, and is worthy of great debate and importance, despite the fact there are a million easy cases in the lower courts and in real life all the time. Schauer used the example of, we know to stop at a red light. It's a rule. It's a rule that works. Okay, fine. That has nothing to do with discussing the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, that's all I want to say about Fred Schauer. All right, here's my big question to you. Okay. <sighs> I believe it's in your Dobbs piece, but I think it's consistent with your precedent piece. This is the sentence you wrote: "Doctrine should change with a change in personnel." <laughs> I think mm. you wrote that, um, which is the op, which is not the opposite, but it does implicate the sentence that I've been uttering on Twitter and Facebook, on this podcast, and my work, and on Dorf on Law now for five years. Which is, if changing judges changes law, do we know what law is? And you seem to be saying. Changing judges should change the law. And let's keep this at the Supreme Court level, because that's, that's, let's just keep it there. Really? The law should change when people change? I thought the whole idea of the rule of law, and, and what was that's not the case. And in fact, just going back to Marbury quickly, one of the ideas of Marbury versus Madison was, leaving aside the jurisdictional question, um, the law required Jefferson to give this commission. So he, so the court has the authority to give him this, to make Jefferson, or really Madison, give Marbury the commission because that's what the law requires. And the fact that the people may change or not change should be irrelevant. You know, I'm talking hypothetically here to that. I think your position is if the people change and their values change, then the law should change along with it. I think that's an unusual thing <laughs> for. A con law professor to say, I agree. I, I, descriptively, I think you're 100% right. Normatively, yeah. I think it's problematic. All right, go.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you, uh, leveled this, this, uh, accusation question. But, but is it, is that an accusation? Because you agree, you say, question. Descriptively, question. you think it's largely right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a lot to say here. So, um, I think the main point I want to make is the descriptive, Claim, because I think that that really has a lot of downstream effects. Once you see that, in fact, there is a coherent understanding of the law, where the law is basically the collection of the personal rules or personal precedents of the judges, um, that, that that could just constitute the law. You know, that that is one way of understanding the law. Um, uh, once you see that changes in personnel do result in changes in institutional precedent, very often. Once you see that. PEOPLE IN THE POLITICAL SYSTEM ARE CHOOSING CERTAIN PEOPLE TO BE JUDGES SPECIFICALLY BECAUSE THEY WANT TO MAKE THOSE PEOPLE'S PERSONAL precedents INTO INSTITUTIONAL PRECEDENCE. ONCE YOU SEE ALL THAT DESCRIPTIVELY, uh, THERE JUST IS THIS CONNECTION BETWEEN FORMAL INSTITUTIONAL LAW AND PERSONAL IDENTITY OF INDIVIDUALS. THEY'RE NOT THE SAME THING, BUT THEY'RE VERY CONNECTED AND ONE MAY BE KIND OF BUILT OUT OF THE OTHER. SO you know, PART OF WHAT WE DO IN THIS JOB IS TRY TO FIND THE TRUTH and say the truth, and so if you're agreeing with me at some level that something like this is in fact descriptively true um, uh, about how the law changes or maybe even more analytically what the law is, and that seems like an important thing to, to to reckon with and to grapple with. Now, having said all those kind of descriptive or analytic points, um, I, I think the should question maybe blurs with something a little bit different, which is to what extent should swapping in one person uh or their personal rules or their personal precedents for another person and their personal rules or personal precedence, to what degree should that make a difference? And I think that that's a more directly normative question that I think is more complicated because it it would be odd, for example, if the nine justices of the Supreme Court had wildly different personal precedents, resulting in uh you know, no coherence in majority opinions, or if you swap out one person for another person, everything, the whole Apple card is just overturned um every area of law from bankruptcy to uh, to administrative law, everything is disrupted. So, so there could be normative problems with, uh, with a contingent state of affairs that recognizes the connection between personal precedence and institutional precedence for sure. And I think I think that's a reasonable critique to some degree of where we are right now, where sub, uh, substituting Barrett in favor of Ginsburg upon her death um, may be created and is creating too much tumult. I think that's a, that's a plausible that's a plausible view, um, or we should confront that. Um, the the kind of p- affirmative pitch I make, I, don't, I didn't remember writing exactly the sentence you quoted. I'll have to go back and, and relish that. Uh, the, I'll, I'll uh,
0: say
1: it again. I put quotation marks around it. I mean, it, it's yeah, definitely no, your right. words. Doctrine should change with a change in personnel. Yeah. So he, here's the way in which at the moment I think that that statement is 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 true, but maybe it's a little different from how it, it sounds um, just read like that. Uh it is, I think, a very believable feature of human psychology and of the judiciary that, that when we make mistakes, me included, we are reluctant to admit it, even yeah. when we're wrong. Right. right. And uh, also people who were uh, been around the sun a few more times maybe aren't necessarily the most up to speed on on pressing issues, at least for some segments of the of the of the population. And the judiciary, by nature, tends to be skewed towards people who have who are a bit older because it takes training and expertise and anymore. Yeah. Well, it, it depends what you mean. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of, um, a lot of, um, uh, teenagers on the Supreme Court. So, so for those kinds of reasons, it's, uh, very believable to me that if you have a political movement that changes deliberately the composition of the Supreme Court, uh, from what it used to be, uh, and that that political movement is pointed at, towards disrupting an older case that many believe to have been a mistake, that that is far from being a reason to hunker down and insist on staying the course, which is kind of, I think you're saying correctly, the more conventional view, certainly the view of the Dobbs dissenters, rather than saying that, no, I think it is a reason to kick the tires on this old decision and revisit it and and maybe disrupt things. So that's a way in which for me, gradualism, I say in the paper, both, it both uh, in the chapter, it both pushes and pulls. So it pulls rash justices back from sweeping action too quickly, but it can also much more softly, but also nudge, a hesitant justice or should nudge a hesitant justice to say, you know what? Maybe we should revisit something because it's, it's meaningful that there's a political movement that has changed the composition of the court to correct an alleged error. Uh, that doesn't mean, I think that the centers automatically had to join something like what the chief did, but I do think that that is on balance a reason for them to have done that.
0: Yeah. Erwin Chimorinsky once wrote, um, constitutional law. I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost exactly this what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, and i talked to him last week i know he still stands by this um erwin once wrote constitutional law litigated constitutional law um uh, is now has always been and will always be the aggregate of the value preferences of the justices which is very similar to which which is not wholly divorced from your article i mean it's it's
1: yeah i i would have to quote that in in as a as a Point of this dif- difference, because okay. I do think that a lot of people take my view to be the same as that. Yes. But it, and and it is it is moving maybe more in that direction yes. from a lot of other counts, but it's not quite the same, because because for me the what I'm trying to suggest might be the law, or at least might be something that normatively ought to be taken more seriously is not just the va- the the preferences, is that the value preferences, because value preferences can be implicit, value preferences can be self-reported, value preferences can be updated instantly what i'm the personal precedents or personal rules I'm talking about are not that they're public they're reported you know they're 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 documented they're they're positive they're, they're like in the sense of positivism they are they are generated in not the same way but in the same ballpark of ways as like a statute is uh and that makes them uh both more limited more incomplete and more fixed than merely value preferences if the value preferences were all it is and you know descriptively by the way i that's a potential critique of me is that I'm trying to have a better descriptive account, but maybe the Chemerinsky account that you just said is even more descriptively accurate. You mean know, that's, that's like, you know, more weapons grade legal realism. It's just, it's yes. just political ideology all the way through. Right. Not Political, yeah, I, not so, political,
0: but ideology.
1: Okay. Ooh, sorry. What did you say?
0: Well, so, so part, I don't, I don't want people to think, um, use yep. the word political. Partisanship yep. is a subset of ideology. My view. Yes. And I think Erwin's view is it's all about ideology. It's only sometimes about partisanship.
1: I totally agree with that. I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So so whatever the ideology bucket is, though, yeah. it is different from the personal precedent bucket. Yes. They are related, but they're not the same. I, and so so I push off a little bit from that. Well, I
0: think Irwin would say if he heard you I, – I feel comfortable speaking for him. We're pretty close. I think he would say if he heard you say that <laughs> the initial personal precedent you're talking about, the, the, the initial writing or, or even the initial testimony or whatever it is you want to talk about, that is the result of ideology novel. Uh, in other words, it's it, it, it's a regress. And, and frankly, the critics said that too. I mean, you know, that, that it's, whatever, whatever, whatever you hail as a marker of personal precedent at, just talking to the Supreme Court now, um, whether it's a concurring opinion, dissenting opinion, majority opinion, testimony, or even a book, whatever, that marker is more the result of, of ideology than any ism, like formalism, originalism, textualism, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I I think there's something to that. I mean, it's kind of goes back to the uh, change of heart exchange we had, Yeah, where it seems like there's something, I would call it Mm pre-legal. And I I I, I wanna call it pre-legal to separate it from law or from personal precedence, but also to acknowledge that there is a connection there. I mean, you might think that it's from the stew of ideology that people construct these more formal systems that are more law-like, partly because it's, it's not, it's not very, um, seemly. I mean, even a Posnerian, I think, would say there's something, there's something fishy about a judge who gets up and says, my own, the only law that I know is the law of my own heart. That, that, you could imagine a, a judge like that, and maybe there have been judges like that, but th- there's something obviously problematic about that. And so I think that, that's an illustration of the movement from, from the one step, okay. uh, toward the other step.
0: Okay. Uh, one observation, one question, then we'll call it a day. Yeah, My observation okay. is what you described a few minutes ago about incoherence. We don't want, you know, um, a lot of us, and, and I, I, I just told Justice O'Connor's law clerk this on Saturday night. I've changed my mind a lot about O'Connor over the years. I've been, I was wrong mm-hmm. I think, in a lot of ways about her. I once wrote an article how Justice O'Connor's jurisprudence failed the rule of law. I kind of regret writing that piece. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was pretty young when I wrote it. Um, but um, I think there are a lot of, conservatives who believe that O'Connor's practice of writing either majority opinions that she thought were hitting the sweet spot of the political center or more appropriate, more importantly, writing concurring opinions that more often than not claimed to be accurately reciting the majority opinion, but did not, (laughs) created a lot of incoherence in the 80s and i've been and and reading your piece and then then rereading it again quickly yesterday um your idea of personal precedent reminded me of what justice o'connor said when she was here at georgia state and it's the opposite it's the opposite of what you're saying i think you're right and she's wrong but this is what she said this was after she retired somebody asked her They said, you know, Justice Powell, we understand, was one of your mentors and who you admire. And she said, yes, of course. Justice Powell said when he retired that his vote in Bowers versus Hardwick was the case that upheld George's law prohibiting same-sex sodomy. Actually, prohibited all sodomy, but they applied it to same-sex sodomy. Um, She said, Powell said he regretted that vote and he wished he could have it back. So someone asked Justice O'Connor, do you have any votes you would take back now that you've retired? Her response, Richard, was so interesting to, and I think it's interesting to your work. She was very, she got very, she was very wonderfully charming and open when she was here. But Then she got very closed, and her body language changed. (laughs) And she said, no, there are no cases I regret. Look, this is, I'm talking in her tone of voice. Look, this is what we do. We have a hard case, and it's hard, and we work really hard, and we do our best to get it right. And then, and this is a direct quote, we don't look back. <laughs> that's what she said. And she basically denied any self-reflection on what came before. I feel like that's exactly the opposite of what you want judges to do, <laughs> that they should reflect on what they've said in the past and how that f- – have you? am I correct in assuming you don't think judges should say, ah, I decided that 10 years ago. I'm not going back.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're, you're right that I, I'm, I'm for self-reflection. Uh, <laughs> it's maybe an occupation. Hazard that I have that disposition. You know, in an indirect way, what you said there reminds me of, of some work, especially by Nina Versava on judicial rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because one way of understanding O'Connor's, um, expressions there are that they are rhetorical shields for herself and the judiciary's integrity. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I, um, uh, I'm, like, my president's permission thing. I'm, I think rhetorical shields can be good. Uh, so I don't want to come, a, come a, out totally against that. I also wonder if O'Connor actually did look back a few times, you know, which, 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 if true, would suggest that there was this kind of rhetoric reality distinction, um, uh, in what she was saying. You know, she, she has that, um, it's been publicly reported that, that in her chamber she had a, a pillow that said something like, Maybe an error, but never in doubt, yes. or something like that. Yes, yes. And, and it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek, you know, um, uh, toughness yeah. that, that that she's not going to um, she's not going to anguish over yes. error. She's going to plow ahead. It's kind of part of her part of her um, um, her farm uh, ethic. Yes. A- uh, and and the ultimate I, irony
0: of that. And I know no. we're an hour and twenty minutes in. And I hope people have stayed oh. with us. Because this is a really
1: important. This I, point Improbable.
0: I know. Improbable. I know. But this point I'm about to make, I've never made before. I never thought okay. before. But you triggered it in me. That's why I love your work so much. Because you trigger things in me. Um, you know what's incredibly ironic? Everyone knows that Scalia um, said many terrible things about O'Connor. Not personally, but, you know, her opinions and his, and his opinions. And his rhetoric was very hard. And there was a time when a lot of people thought he pushed her to the left. And if you look at her decisions from 2000, 2006, she clearly moved to the left dramatically in in, in on, abort, uh, on, on, on a lot of different issues. Um, he also would have been one of those people who doesn't look back. He also was not <clears throat> self-reflective. He also, frankly, was maybe in error, but never in doubt. And the two of them have that in common, which now I think is a blog post I have to write because that's... a. No one would think O'Connor and Scalia had anything in common. But I think that they may have had in common. You think I'm crazy? I,
1: I don't think you're crazy. I'll, I'll add two more examples because I've, yeah. I've been thinking about sim- similar things yeah. uh, related to this. So I, I have the impression that um, Justice Blackman got criticized a lot for often being in doubt. Yes. That some, some people thought that that was – it was not just that it was a burden for him internally, but that people thought that was – a mark, maybe, because he's obviously a very controversial figure, it became associated with being a, a, a problem or, a, yeah. or a, a defect. You have too much self-doubt, maybe. Yeah. And rightly or wrongly, at least some people thought that, that Blackman, um, went, went too far in that direction. Maybe the Powell, the Powell examples could be, I wonder if Powell's going around talking about all these, his blunders. I wonder if in that time period that was making that salient. But the, the other uh, kind of almost counter example to that, I, I'm recently reading, um, uh, Harlan opinions, second Harlan, and I'm just delighted to and to read them. and understanding why my colleagues, some of my colleagues, have told me that I he, love uh, him. Is, that yeah, he was he was so popular in his yeah. day among professors yeah. for this reason that Harlan he was clearly he would say without any need to in the opinion he would say you know at one point I thought this case should be affirmed now I'm going to reverse yes and and he would just he would just cough that up you admit that right away. Uh, in a kind of an easy way, without me, ma- without wringing his hands, I guess. Um, and I, I wonder if there's maybe the Harlan, the appeal of Harlan, at least for academic yeah. people like us, maybe that that he was able to balance those two things in a way that seemed attractive.
0: You keep saying things that just make me want to say more things. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the audience is patient enough. Um, no, I mean Harlan. Harlan was willing to say this is a really hard question. And I, you know, whereas opposed to Scalia, and I think to some degree, O'Connor, less so O'Connor, but both of them were, "Eh, you know, it's easy. Don't get over it. Bush versus Gore. Get over it. You know, I don't think Harlan would have ever said to anybody, just get over it. That's not something he ever would have said. All right. I've got to get this last question out and and we're already indulging too much. Um, So I wrote a blog post a, a couple of years ago that said that, the most influential Supreme Court justice of our generation, this will change obviously in the next 10 years, was Justice Kennedy. There's no question. He ran the court from 2006 to 2018. If he wasn't in the majority, you probably lost most of the time in con law cases. Um, and the most important non-Supreme Court justice of our generation is obviously Judge Posner. Um, And they're both Republicans, both nominated by Reagan, both. Didn't care a whole lot about doctrine. I mean, in the formal sense, you know, Obergefell and Windsor and Lee versus Weissman and all these cases Kennedy wrote were criticized from the right as being, and even from the left, as being non-doctrinal. Do gays, are gays a suspect class? Give us an answer. Give us a doctrinal answer. You know, Kennedy never did give a doctrinal answer to that question. And of course, Posner hadn't, didn't care about doctrine at all, really, um, other than being blocked by precedent. My thesis is those two men, those two giants, however you look at them, predate the Federalist Society, which is a fact. They both came of age uh, in the 70s, and the Federalist Society began in 1982. Um, And Kennedy was put on the court in the 70s, and Posner was put on the court, I believe, in 81, maybe 82. Um, Again, before the Federalist Society. Are we, first of all, do you think there's anything to that? And second of all, I think we need a lot more Kennedys and Posners in this world. I think we and even if they're conservative, I think we need more anti formalists. But I'm not sure we're gonna get that from the right because of the Federalist Society. Think I'm crazy again? Second question time? No
1: no, no I, I don't I don't I think you're off base. I think there's a lot to that. I think it's interesting that you you pair Kennedy and Posner because I think uh many people, I think mean, maybe they themselves might have viewed them as more different than similar. No, I think in a lot more of similar. ways. Yeah. Yeah, but in some ways not. I mean, because Kennedy had a big formalist streak that, the Posner did not. And in my view, anyway, and, and I would actually associate myself more with the Kennedy part, but, but I see what you're saying, that they, they were pre-FedSoc, um, Republican appointees. Uh, I think the FedSoc has has clearly had a huge effect on many aspects of legal culture. And I think you're definitely picking up on something, uh, very important there. It, 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 it did a lot of different things, or is doing a lot of different things. It, it, it creates a catalyst for thinking. It legitimizes certain views. It creates a roster of people who can be considered for appointments. Um, I think, for me, maybe even more important than those very important features of, of FedSoc and of, of legal culture generally, is how the judges operated once they became judges. Um, because I, I mean, I, I haven't rigorously checked this, so I, this could be overstated or, or wrong on my part, but. You know, Justice Kennedy did a lot of public events of many types. I don't think he was doing a lot of uh, FedSoc convention events. No, he uh, wasn't. By- You're right. You're right. Yeah. And, yeah. And I, you know, similar on ACS, you know, I think there's a, uh, I, I think some of the Democratic appointees who in a sense were pre-ACS, but, but kind of got on the, the ACS bandwagon to some extent. And I, 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 I think it's that, you know, Kennedy, O'Connor, people like that, part of the reason is that they predate the, the, the formal polarization of the legal community, the professional legal community to some degree. But partly I think it's their, their attitude about law again, that, that there's something odd, I think, uh, for them about, about attending these events in a way that could be construed as, um, as having an organizational valence. And that, that's not to say that I think that the Fed like is all bad or anything like that, but, um, where the, speaking at the events is, is inappropriate, uh, for a sitting judge, but it, it's revealing. It's revealing of where we are, I think, that, that it's so common for justices to speak at, at events of both types. And I know there have been proposals to, to prevent that, and yeah. I don't, I don't want to make it seem like those proposals are, are all good or they'd solve all our problems, but just, just as kind of a diagnostic feature of where our practices, where our personal precedents are, um, it, it's very important, I think, that, that shift.
0: I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. So the article that's in Harvard right now is called Personal Precedent at the Supreme Court. I strongly recommend it. I also want to say that there are about well, between 10 and 15 law professors who, when they come out with a new big article, I make sure I read them. Uh, you're one of those 10 or 15, um, even though you're not writing about originalism, which is what's been occupying my mind for the last three or four years um, or, or 10 years. Um, but. Um, People should read Richard Wright. Your work is interesting and provocative without reaching grandiose conclusions that aren't based, I think, on what comes before, as a lot of law professors, I think, do. Um, And mostly your articles, I've been thinking about these issues for 40 years, and your articles make me think differently about them. And that's the best compliment I can give. So thank you so much for being on here. It's great to talk to you. I've been wanting to talk to you just before, well before COVID, and I'm glad we finally got it to work out.
1: Well, I'm, I'm very grateful. I've learned from your work, obviously. Uh, you can tell from the, the pages I'm writing and from this conversation. I think maybe both of us have got some more more <laughs> offline conversations to have in light of this quite lengthy exchange, frankly. We've been, we've been talking for a long time. I know. We better so, go. Um, Richard, thank you, up? thank you so
0: much for being here.
1: Right. Thank you, Eric. Bye-bye.